There is a move today to legalize same-sex marriage, and it is not slowing down. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What are the arguments for same-sex marriage and against this legislation? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Recently, Dr. Zuckerin hosted a conference in Hawaii to discuss some of the most compelling topics today and offered an evaluation from a Christian standpoint. Today, Dr. Zuckerin welcomes an expert on contemporary culture, including same-sex marriage, Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries in Dallas-Fort Worth. Kirby presents an analysis of same-sex marriage and the current state of the controversy. And as we begin today, we want to invite you to our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find information on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, featuring past shows, interviews with experts, books, articles, and a whole lot more. We think you'll love the topics, so check us out today. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zucharin presents Kirby Anderson with Part 1 on Same-Sex Marriage. What I want to try to do tonight briefly, and I do mean briefly, is to summarize just parts of my book, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality, as it relates to this issue of same-sex marriage. But before we get into the specifics, as you look at your notes, I put down one uh, part of the outline, why all the attention? Have you ever wondered about that? As a talk show host, I find myself coming into the studio and oftentimes having our producer say, you know, we need to talk about homosexuality again. And I go, why is it this time? Well, there was just a judge that made a ruling here, or there's a case here in San Francisco about Proposition 8, or they've just been considering this issue in the legislature in Massachusetts, or the legislature in Hawaii, or this is happening in California, this just happened in Iowa, and I find myself sort of forced to talk about it, even when there are other issues that I would certainly like to address. That's not by chance. There was a book that was published 20 years ago entitled After the Ball. This is a book that really set forth the gay agenda. The book uh, was really a culmination of some essays that had been written in the late 1980s. But when this book came out in the early 1990s, it set forth this agenda. They said that if we want to really begin as homosexuals to win the war of ideas, there are a few things we need to do. First of all, we've got to talk about homosexuality all the time, 24-7. We need to try to find as many individuals as possible to talk about this. We need to get homosexual characters written into the scripts on television shows. We need to identify every homosexual journalist. Uh, We also need very quickly to begin to attack anybody who disagrees with us. We need to marginalize those people who see that homosexuality is wrong, and we need to treat them like bigots. More importantly, we need to treat ourselves like victims We need to really be identified as victims in this fight. We also need to find ways for people in government to provide funding for gay causes. We also need to find ways in which those people in major industries and corporations will provide same-sex benefits, uh, various kinds of other kinds of benefits, and even endorse the homosexual lifestyle. Okay, that was the agenda. 20 years later, how effective have they been? Pretty incredible, isn't it? You read through that book, and I have it on my shelf, and you're welcome to go and find it as well, or even read some of the summary. You realize why all the attention? That was intended. So sometimes there is a tendency for us to say, you know, I really don't even want to talk about the subject. I understand. I have that same feeling as a talk show host. But you know what? We do need to talk about it, because it really does relate to some very important issues. 
Pat kind of alluded to how we think about this biblically, but permit me, if you might, for just a minute to move down on my outline to talk about the Bible and homosexuality. And the reason I do this is I only want to look at a handful of passages, four in particular, but I do this because I recognize that as we have this debate about same-sex marriage, as we have debates about homosexuality, there are those individuals in various churches, the Metropolitan Church, for example, the various gay-friendly churches and denominations, that are saying that actually the Bible doesn't say anything negative about homosexuality. And so for just a minute, I'd like to maybe come back and focus our time and attention and answer some of those questions. If you have a Bible with you, you can even turn to Genesis 19. And one of the passages that oftentimes is used to help us understand what the uh, Bible would say, what God would say about homosexuality, is in Genesis 19. And here we have Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And here we see, I've given you one translation, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Now, the gay activists say, we have misinterpreted this verse, because here, the actual word is that we may know them. And you have said that when it says no, that means to have sex, and we recognize that sometimes in the Old Testament, when it uses the Hebrew word which we translate to be no, yada, that that was, simple, that was to describe sex, but you've misinterpreted this passage because really all they wanted to know is they wanted to just get to know them. They were just the community greeting group. They just wanted to shake their hands. They just wanted to say hello. And so the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. The sin of Sodom was inhospitality. <laughs> now you may laugh at this, but I can take you to university classrooms where I've been. I've been with Pro Ministries 34 years. I've spent most of my time speaking in college classrooms. People don't laugh when they hear that. Now you might say, okay, well, how do I respond to that? Well, context is everything, isn't it? What's the next thing that Lot does? Offers what? His daughters. Which I think would be kind of a major overreaction if all they wanted to do is shake their hands. Does that make sense to you? So even within the context, you can maybe set that aside. If you go to the New Testament, which in a sense is a commentary on the Old Testament, Jude talks about them uh, seeking after foreign flesh. And it's pretty obvious that the interpretation is there. But I think we have to understand that if you are a student in, say, Religion 101, and you hear that interpretation, you go, huh, maybe I've misinterpreted that particular passage. Why it's so important for those of us within the church to help give biblical answers to that. Let's go to another key set of passages in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20. We have two passages, both which are essentially saying the same. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Now again, my homosexual friends that, and gay activists that I've interacted with over the years will say, well, true, uh, it does seem that uh, that is something that is obviously put in a very negative light in the Old Testament here in Leviticus. But if you people in the church were going to be really consistent, you know, you go a couple more verses down here, and it talks about the fact that you're not to eat shellfish. And I saw you at Red Lobster the other day, you know. I can't believe, you know, you obviously violated that command. At one point it says that you should not uh, 
wear clothes of mixed threads and, you know, I can see what you're wearing. So, after all, again, you're just sort of picking and choosing your verses. Now, again, I won't spend a lot of time, but uh, various books and even my book on homosexuality helps under, help us understand that there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, ceremonial law. We had ceremonial law in the Old Testament. doesn't necessarily mean that we continue that in the New Testament. There's no temple sacrifices. So there's a discontinuity when you talk about ceremonial law. What about civil law? Well, those civil laws which were given to the Old Testament theocracy again, are not implied in the New Testament. There's a discontinuity there. But when you talk about the moral law, there's continuity. Stealing is wrong in the Old Testament. Is stealing wrong in the New Testament? Murder is wrong in the Old Testament. Murder wrong in the New Testament. And so here, I think you can see that when we talk about a moral issue, there is a continuity. Another quick answer, and I won't go into all these in detail, you can read about this either by going to our website, which I'll give at the end, and I think Pat's already mentioned, or even finding some of the material in our books. You might also point out that a little bit later, there are also passages that talk about rape, incest, bestiology, bestiality, and those are all detestable as well. And so far, I haven't met any gay activists that will say, well, if you say that these passages we now give a pass to, we'd also give a pass to for rape, incest, and bestiality. So there are just lots of ways to respond to it. But again, the point I'm trying to make is we live in a world where people are saying we've misinterpreted the Bible. And if we're going to be good at answering biblical questions when biblical issues are raised, we need to know how to respond. In the New Testament, a couple of passages, probably the best known, Romans 1, 18 and following, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Therefore, God gave them over in their sexual desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, men committing indecent acts with other men. And so the argument that is sometimes used here is, well, I've heard a couple. I know when I was at Yale University, every once in a while, even though I was in the science area, I would go up to the Yale Divinity School. And I remember one time a friend of mine invited me when they were talking about Romans 1. And their answer to this very simply at the Yale Divinity School is, well, just Paul had a bad attitude towards homosexuals. Uh, or then later on, I've seen some others that say, well, actually what he's talking about here is temple prostitution of homosexuals, none of which contexts work very well, but that uh, certainly is sometimes used as an argument or related to this particular one in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. They will sometimes say, well, this could relate to homosexual temple prostitution or homosexual offenders. In other words, what they were speaking out against are people that were not in a truly monogamous homosexual relationship. <coughs> And again, you just have difficulty responding to those because that is not the case. But okay, if uh, we only are talking about homosexual offenders 
then that would also apply to adulterer offenders, idolatrous offenders. You know, you begin to go down the logic and see that it just doesn't work very well. But nevertheless, that is kind of the biblical discussion that is taking place. But as we get into the political arena, I think we have to recognize that oftentimes they say those of you with biblical convictions should not even be allowed to carry on the conversation. And so the question that I think we will surface tomorrow, especially when we talk about Christians and politics, is if we can't use a biblical argument, are there common sense arguments we can also use? And the answer is yes. Now the point I'm making is, is it isn't that we hide our biblical convictions, but we don't start out with our biblical presuppositions. Instead, we argue to our biblical conclusions. You might say, well, is that biblical? I think it is. When Paul is in Acts 13 in the, te in the temple with the Jews, can he assume that all the Jews believed in one true God? Yeah, I think so. Can he assume that all the Jews there had read the Old Testament and knew the Old Testament? Sure. Can he assume all the Jews there were looking for a coming Messiah? Look at his message. He sort of hits the ground running and begins to show how indeed Christ is the Messiah. Now go to Acts 17. Here, now when he is talking to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, can he assume that all of those individuals there believed in one true God? No, they believed in a pantheon of gods. Can he assume that they knew the Old Testament? No. Can they assume anything about the Messiah? No, I mean, as my teenage daughters used to say, they were clueless. So what did he have to do there? He sort of backs up and in a sense begins to give arguments for the existence of God. Our world used to be a lot like an Acts 13 world, but our, act, our world today is a lot more like an Acts 17 world, isn't it? So we need to come up with ways in which we make our case. And so we don't have to hide our biblical convictions about homosexuality, but I think the argument can also help us understand how to begin to make the case. First of all, why is this an issue? Let's review our history. In 1993, the Supreme Court of Hawaii ruled that the state's marriage statute was a form of discrimination. 1993 is when the stopwatch or the clock began. All of us around the nation looked at Hawaii because of what had happened there. Now you know the rest of the story. A little over three years later, a trial court also ruled that it was in violation of a constitution in the state of Hawaii, and so as a result, a little over three years, your legislature passed what became the first Marriage Protection Act. By 1993, as we saw what happened in Hawaii, and then shortly thereafter what happened in Alaska, nationally, then, various pro-life groups understood that we might have a potential problem. Because if same-sex marriage was legalized in Hawaii, which did not happen, but at the time nobody knew if it was, we recognize that under the so-called full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, a marriage that was legalized as a same-sex marriage in one state could then become legalized in another state. For example, my wife and I were married in the state of Oregon. We now live in the state of Texas. We didn't have to get remarried in the state of Texas. Full faith and credit clause says that's the case. I uh, have a Texas driver's license, but when I rented a car, I didn't have to get a Hawaii driver's license to do a rental car. Make sense? But you can see what happens with marriage. If all of a sudden one state has same-sex marriage, as people go into another state, they would then still be considered married, right? 
That's why in 1996, the United States Congress passed what was called the Defense of Marriage Act, which prevented that from taking place. Everything began to calm down. There were little kind of short things happening here and there. Vermont had civil unions and a few others, but then the key date is 2003. I've said before that what happened in 1973 with Roe versus Wade and abortion and unleashed abortion, the same kind of thing happened in 2003 on the issue of homosexuality. Because first, even before the one that I have on the screen, the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, ruled that an anti-sodomy law in the state of Texas was unconstitutional. At the time, those who voted against it in the court said that this could be used to justify same-sex marriage, and it was just months later in which four justices in the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriages should be allowed, and by the next year, they began to issue marriage licenses in the state of Massachusetts. Since that time, there have been two things that have happened. A handful of states have actually, always through judicial act, judicial fiat, or in one case a legislative vote, impose same-sex marriage on the people. But in reaction, more than 30 states have passed marriage protection amendments, which actually protect themselves in a way that even the Defense of Marriage Act does not. And so now we have this patchwork quilt around the country in which some states have same-sex marriage and other states basically have an amendment in their state constitution prohibiting it. And the battle lines are really drawn. Well, let's, if we can, then begin to ask some questions. One of the questions we always have is, how will same-sex marriage affect the church? I'll give you just a couple of short answers. First of all, I think some people that have said that if you have same-sex marriage, it would force a pastor to actually perform a same-sex marriage ceremony. I don't see that happening in the near term. After all, right now, we allow pastors to decide if they want to or not want to marry a person. And I don't think that that is going to change anytime soon. But many people have begun to raise the question, and I talked about this this morning with the pastors at the breakfast, about whether or not opposition to same-sex marriage could be used to challenge the tax-exempt status of churches. The justification goes all the way back to a kind of obscure case that went to the Supreme Court years ago from Bob Jones University. And the argument that was given at the time is since at that time Bob Jones University did not allow interracial marriage, could that be used then to pull the tax-exempt status from Bob Jones University? I think the opponents tried to find a fairly unpopular view wouldn't we all agree that that was a very unpopular view? But they used that to create a precedent which now, again, could be used here. And so we can see the potential danger to the church. As I shared this morning with some of the pastors, we don't have to guess about the impact of things like hate crimes, as I talked about this morning with them, or same-sex marriage, because the social experiment has been taking place in Canada and in Europe for many, many years. We know what the impact is. We also know what the impact is now in the United States. As soon as Massachusetts passed same-sex marriage, the first challenge that came came to Catholic Charities. Catholic Charities, for more than a century, had been providing adoptions for couples that sought them. 
But now that same-sex marriage was legal, they were required to also provide adoptions for same-sex couples. Now, this had come up before, and Catholic Charities have always was saying, we can't in good conscience provide any kind of counsel or adoptions for same-sex couples, but we will refer you to other agencies that do that, but we can't violate the teaching of our own church. Boston and the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts said, that's not good enough. If you will not provide adoptions for same-sex couples, you will go out of business. And Catholic Charities, after 100 years, went out of business. We're having the same thing happen right now. If you've been following what is happening in the District of Columbia, the D.C. City Council has now approved same-sex marriage. And as a result, Catholic Charities, which provides millions of dollars, I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars. D.C. provides some of it through Catholic Charities, but the Catholic Charities themselves provides $10 million of their own money to feed the poor in the district to meet all kinds of welfare needs in the district. And again, because they cannot agree to this idea of same-sex marriage, the District of Columbia is willing to put Catholic Charities out of business. You see the implication. And so again, some people say, well, it won't affect the church. Yes, it will. And we don't have to guess about this because we've seen how it has played out in other countries I've been providing for anybody that wants it a very good interview we've done with Paul Diamond, who's kind of the leading barrister in the UK, about the impact that it had there. But we also can see what happens right here in our own country. Marianne Glendon is a professor at Harvard University, and yet recently in the Wall Street Journal, she said something that I thought was very telling about what she saw taking place in the future. Being a professor at Harvard, seeing same-sex marriage passed, and looking at other states, she concluded that gay marriage proponents use the language of openness, tolerance, and diversity. Yet one foreseeable effect of their success will be to usher in an era of intolerance and discrimination, the likes of which we have rarely seen before. Every person and every religion that disagrees will be labeled as bigoted and openly discriminated against. Isn't that kind of what Pat Zuprin was talking about just a few minutes ago? Pretty honest professor at Harvard University. Okay, we've talked briefly, what would be the impact of same-sex marriage on the church? Next question, what would be the impact of same-sex marriage on society? Well, lots of questions are beginning to surface. First of all, would this provide the same kind of protection for what we call the freedom of association? We already have a national hate crimes law. The next piece of legislation, homosexual legislation, being considered by Congress right now is ENDA. That stands for the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. And the idea of freedom association would be that if you are an individual and you are in any way discriminating against a person because of sexual orientation, even if you think in your job that might be a relevant criteria, For example, you're a Christian bookstore, and you just wouldn't want an individual who disagreed with some of the premises of Christian publishing in there. Maybe you were a church, and you had a daycare center. We had questions about that. Maybe you wanted, this is an individual that wanted to be a coach on a team. Whatever it might be, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act 
would basically prohibit that and allow individuals to bring suits against you. So you can see that, first of all, it raised the question about the freedom of association. The second would be the issue of the freedom of speech. We recognize that already with hate crime legislation, with other kinds of attempts to normalize homosexuality, even quoting the verses I just did in Romans 1 from a pulpit, could actually be actionable. And there are lots of arguments we could make there as well. What about what our kids would learn? We now, again, don't have to guess about the impact. The moment same-sex marriage was legalized in Massachusetts, the requirement came down from the State Board of Education that the textbooks needed to provide alternative lifestyles, role models within the textbooks. And textbooks would have to provide and include homosexual marriage role models. Actually, even after the case in 2003 in the state of Texas, after the anti-sodomy law was struck down, there was a real push by the Texas Board of Education, at least some of the more liberal members, to change even the kinds of pictures that were in the textbooks, because after all, we don't want to, here's the key word, discriminate against other kinds of lifestyles. So again, the impact could be significant. Well, we are just out of time today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin, so we'll pick it up there next time with Kirby Anderson on same-sex marriage. Dr. Zucharin has much more on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find more on same-sex marriage and homosexuality and resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And it really is a blessing when you offer a financial gift to Evidence and Answers to help keep us on the air and online, giving an intelligent presentation of the claims of Christ and a biblical evaluation on a multitude of hot topics. Just click the Donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. And please do so today. It would mean so much to us to hear from you. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Thanks for being here.